You're listening to the Harris Beach Podcast, a show that explores evolving issues in the law and how they shape organizations, the way business is conducted, and how we live and work. The information provided in this episode does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials are for general informational purposes only. Thanks for listening. Here's today's host. T-cell therapies offer enormous promise in the development of new approaches to treating cancer. A federal appeals court recently heard arguments in a patent dispute between two companies that have emerged as leaders in CAR-T technology for new cancer treatments. Juno Therapeutics in 2020 won a $1 billion judgment against Gilead's Kite Pharma in connection with alleged infringements of U.S. patent number 7446190 entitled Nucleic Acid Encoding Chimeric T-Cell Receptors. The patent relates to a treatment approach that uses specially altered T-cells, a part of the immune system, to fight cancer. The invention was developed at Sloan Kettering and licensed to Juno by a Sloan Kettering entity. In this episode of the Harris Beach Podcast, partner Laura Smalley, a member of our intellectual law practice group, provides additional background on the case, analyzes the circuit court arguments, and provides her thoughts on the implications of the case and what might happen next. Here's Laura. Hi, I'm Laura Smalley. Um, I monitor cases in the biotech space, particularly those that involve written description and enablement issues for patent claiming. And these issues are very important for patent drafting. The Federal Circuit Court of Appeals um, held its oral argument in Juno versus Kite Pharma yesterday, July 6th. A large part of the briefing in the case and a focus of the trial court's decision was the validity of the patented issue in terms of whether the patent claims satisfied the written description and enablement requirements. Um, Interestingly, this was one of, I believe, two cases held in person for the first time since the pandemic started, the Federal Circuit uh, testing new protocols for in-person arguments. So the attorneys were actually there in the courtroom, although only audio was available. As background, the patent involved in the suit relates to CAR T-cell therapy. This is a form of immunotherapy that uses specially altered T-cells, a part of the immune system, to fight cancer. A sample of a patient's T-cells are collected from the blood, then modified to produce special structures called chimeric antigen receptors on their surface. When these CAR T-cells are reinfused into the patient, the new receptors enable them to latch onto a specific antigen on the patient's tumor cells and kill them. The plaintiffs, who are Juno Therapeutics and the Sloan Kettering Institute for Cancer Research, accused Kite Pharmaceuticals' Yascarta product of infringement. Yascarta is a treatment for large B-cell lymphoma or follicular lymphoma, two types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. At the time of the trial in 2019, Yascarta was only one of two FDA-approved CAR-T therapies. Yascarta reportedly has amazing results, curing over 50% of patients who have unsuccessfully endured at least two lines of treatment. One of the judges at oral argument even noted the success, stating that the drug was an amazing treatment that actually cured cancer. One of the reasons that this case um, is so interesting is that the judgment was $1.2 billion and included a 27.6 running royalty. 
According to Kite's papers, the award exceeded Yaskarta's revenue through trial. I read somewhere, I think in Law 360, that Yaskarta is marketed for $373,000 a pop. So although the judgment was large, you have to consider that this is a very expensive treatment. Um, one surprising thing was the length of the argument. It was scheduled for the standard 30 minutes, but it lasted almost an hour and a half, which is very unusual for the federal circuit. The case was held, heard by an all-female panel, including judges Kimberly Moore, Sharon Prost, and Kathleen O'Malley. If you are listening to this podcast, which is on a patent case, you probably already know this, but as stated in the 2010 Ariad versus Eli Lilly case, um, Section 112 of the Patent Act contains both a written description requirement and an enablement requirement. In light of these requirements, a patent specification needs to both describe the invention sufficiently so that one of ordinary skill in the art would understand that the inventor possessed the subject matter claimed, and as a separate requirement, teach one of ordinary skill in the art how to make and use the invention. Stated differently, the written description requirement requires the patent specification to convey with reasonable clarity to one skilled in the art that the inventor was in possession of the invention as of the filing date. Enablement requires that the specification teach those in the art to make and use the invention without undue experimentation. So the claims were um, evaluated under these standards. The claims, in essence, disclosed a three-part car, the first part being a co-stimulatory domain of a particular amino acid sequence, amino acids 114 through 220 of a protein called CD28, a primary signaling domain, which was a protein called CD3 zeta, and an SDFB as a binding element. Normally, I wouldn't read the literal claim language, but the language in Part C of what I'm going to read below is particularly important. One of the judges, Judge Moore, I think, noted that the specific language of Part C that I'm about to read was problematic. So the claims at issue were to a nucleic acid polymer encoding a chimeric T-cell receptor, where the chimeric T-cell receptor comprises A, a zeta chain portion comprising the intercellular domain of a human CD3 zeta chain, B, a co-stimulatory signaling region, and C, a binding element that specifically interacts with a selected target, wherein the co-stimulatory signaling region comprises the amino acid sequence encoded by sequence ID number six. That latter part is in essence the CD28 protein I described before. The binding elements are SCFBs, which are simplified antibodies for binding the re-engineered CAR T cells to the targeted cancer cells. The SCFBs are basically two pieces of an antibody's variable regions that are linked together. Really at issue in the arguments were claim three, which specified that the binding element was a single chain antibody, and claim five, where that antibody was able to bind to CD19. One of the judges, as I said before, noted the specific language of Part C that required a binding element and a selected target and noted, the problem is that you haven't defined or given any sort of roadmap for how you would identify which SDFB might work with which antigen. This point was referenced several times during the argument. 
The panel also referenced several times that 16 years after the priority date, Juno tested a billion candidates and only found 60 that worked with CD19. While Juno disputed the nature and import of these facts, this seemed to demonstrate to the judges that the inventor either did not possess the claimed invention or that undue experimentation was required. I'm not really sure which, but the number of large number of species didn't help Juno's argument. We obviously can't predict Federal Circuit decision with certainty, but the panel seemed to be tilting towards finding for Kite on the written description and enablement issues. And this really continues the difficulty under recent Federal Circuit decisions addressing functional limitations. The court says that the patent needs to show how to identify which species can perform the claimed function. This is difficult to determine beforehand because the Federal Circuit decisions don't provide a bright line test. In noting that the patent claims did not have a means for identifying structurally similar or functionally similar SDFBs for even CD19, the panel judges note that you don't have to provide sequences, but a way to provide sufficient identification could be done by sequences, providing structural similarities groups of species in multiple genuses, or a sufficient number of SCFBs to show that the inventor possessed the invention. The real problem I see with these statements is that I think the concept is understood, but the Federal Circuit has not given practitioners a concrete idea of what is enough. They really only tell you what's not enough. Points made by the court that were interesting included a question of when can you rely on background knowledge? For example, in this case, a prior art reference noted in the patent created a so-called cookbook for SCFBs, and it was noted that they could be made by a lab dishwasher. Even though the court stated that SCFBs and how to make them were well known, the patent claims themselves had functional claiming of binding to a target and didn't, according to the court, sufficiently identify which SCFB might work with which antigen. Now, listening to the argument, I, I do think that some of the arguments Juno was making here, that SCFBs were known and easy to make, were hurt by the difficulties it had in commercializing a product, which um, as of trial, I think they hadn't been able to make their own or get approved their own treatment. And the fact that also that this technology is not yet available for more types of cancer. For example, if it's so easy, where are all the treatments for other types of cancers? Also interesting is that the court seemed to note that improvements in technology may help with enablement. For example, if you can test samples with the computer overnight or have the computer run experiments overnight, as one of the panel noted would be analogous to DNA sequencing, uh, experimentation might not be undue. In drafting patent applications, it might be helpful to describe screening methods, how they are performed, and demonstrate that they are not burdensome in the specification. Um, I'm not aware of federal circuit cases approving a method of screening that satisfies enablement, but I think it will be helpful in the future to show how to screen species and how easy it is, if that is in fact the case, and perhaps whether computers can make it much less burdensome. You should be careful in drafting, however, because you don't want to negate the inventive aspects of the invention by claiming it's easy.
I don't really have any additional comments or advice at this point, and I'm basically still waiting for the decision. The recent Amgen denial of en banc rehearing noted the potential use of prophetic examples for Gina's claims, which could be, I guess, theoretical or actually predicted by computer modeling. It'll be interesting to see how the court might address prophetic examples in the future. So I'll be waiting for the federal circuit's decision in this Juno versus Kite case, and we'll see whether it provides further guidance in drafting biotech patents in terms of satisfying written description and enablement requirements. Thanks for listening to the Harris Beach Podcast. Be sure to visit harrisbeach.com to join the conversation and access show notes. Please rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast.